Good morning. It's great to see y'all. Uh, every single one of you is special to us, and we're glad you're here. Those of you who are at home watching us online, we miss you, and we're glad you're with us, uh, at least virtually. I, you know who's not with us is our students. Did y'all miss seeing them this morning, this, these first three or four rows, usually full of uh, high school and junior high students, and they really add to the atmosphere in this place. Uh, so we miss seeing them. They're on staff retreat. We didn't have some special teenage-only rapture. They're, they're on student retreat. This, I said staff retreat, student retreat. Uh, my wife and my two kids are there. Uh, my daughter uh, drove my son down after his uh, cross-country meet, and she's coming back sometime later today. So that meant I was home all by myself, which is usually a good thing. But I found out uh, that the family dog does not like it when the other members of the family aren't there. We have this little rescue dog, a uh, little mutt named Gracie, sweetest dog ever. Uh, but I know she loves me, but she's looking at me like, you're not enough. No, I, I want those other three back. I like them more. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them again when I see them. Uh, I wanted to thank you, those of you who've supported our adoption of Sam Houston Elementary. I found out this week that uh, we have adopted every single one of those teachers, so everyone has a family or a class or an individual who's going to be blessing them in the days ahead. If you're one of those people, you're going to get instructions soon from us on who your teacher is and, and what your next steps are, but thank you so much for, for jumping into that project so, so joyfully, and I'm excited about that. And we, we get to be in Acts 17 today. You know, I, I, I want to share this before we begin we're in this, obviously, this interesting time, but I, just as a pastor, I just sense that God is doing some great things in our church. Now, He's always at work, even when we can't see Him. But I just see, and I think I figured out what's going on. I think there is an openness in us right now that isn't usually there, because we used to take for granted the opportunity to come on Sunday morning and sing songs and, and study the Word together and see our our fellow believers, and then we lost it for a while. And now that we have it back, we're so excited to be back. I think there's a new openness. And so I see more joy. I see spiritual fruit. I, I talk to people who are saying, I'm growing in this way. And I just see exciting things happening. At the same time as that exciting stuff's happening, there's a lot of people struggling. And as a pastor, I see that too. Uh, I just, within the last 12 hours. I've heard about two deaths in our church family, one a, a family member of a church member and one a church member that just, boom, they're gone. And, and uh, it, there's, there's grief there, there's struggles, there's anxiety, and so many people are carrying such a heavy burden. And in both cases, God is sovereign. And I just want you to know, you're in the right place right now. Whether you're sitting in the pew with me or you're watching online, you're in the right place because you've acknowledged, I need the Lord and I need His Word and I need His presence and His family. So let's take advantage of that time. Acts 17, we're continuing this series in the life of Paul. And I don't know, I might be unusual in this. I, I think I'm not. But maybe it's just because I grew up out in the country. But I was in college before I ever met or actually got to know anybody who was of a faith other than Christianity. Growing up, everybody I knew was either a regular churchgoer or they were at least a member of a church 
Or if you pinned them down and said, what's your religion? They'd say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, even if they never went at all. I wouldn't have met anybody growing up in my hometown who would have said, I'm Jewish, I'm Muslim, I'm Hindu, I'm whatever. I just didn't know anybody like that. And then I go to U of H and it's like, you know, the, the kid from the country goes to the United Nations, right? It's, it's this diverse place and it was a great experience for me. But I, I think about how our world today, the world you and I interact with, and that's, this is true whether you work in Houston or here in Conroe or somewhere in this, in this nearby area, is so much more diverse today than it was. The world today is much more like University of Houston was in 1988 when I was a freshman than Hope, Texas was where I grew up. Because it's very likely every one of us has a neighbor, a coworker, an acquaintance, the guy who cuts your hair, the guy who, uh, the lady who does your nails. Somebody gave me a hard time. I've never actually had a manicure done, but theoretically, the lady who does your nails, the, the, your cardiologist, your orthopedist, your kid's teacher, maybe even a member of your family who practices a faith other than Christianity. That's the world we live in. And it's not going to go back to the world where everyone said they were a Christian. That, that world's not coming back. Our world is going to continue to become more and more diverse, more and more religiously pluralistic. And besides that, even among your neighbors who claim no religion at all, and by the way, that's the fastest growing group in our country, you realize every one of them worships something, right? Everybody worships something. In the ancient world, the pagans, uh, they, were, they had all these different gods, but you understand what they were doing, right? They were saying, I need a good harvest, so I'm going to pray to the God of the harvest. I want my wife to bear lots of children. I'm going to worship the God of fertility. I want, I want my financial situation to be blessed. I'm going to, ble- I'm going to worship the God of wealth. Well, that hasn't changed. We just stopped calling them gods. We still worship all those same things today. And so you might have a neighbor whose true God is knowledge and education, and they might be drastically opposed to faith in Christ because they see the Bible as a book of myths and fairy tales. Or you might have a neighbor or a friend or a coworker who worships, uh, who worships success, and they might be opposed to Christianity because in Christianity, the first are last and last are first, and the way to the top is through is through denying yourself and they can't accept that. Or maybe they worship wealth and they don't like a religion where you have to give yourself away when their life is about accumulating things. Or you, you might have friends and coworkers and acquaintances who worship pleasure. Their whole life is built around the next big experience, the, the next big possession, the next big thing that can bring happiness and joy to their life. And they don't like Christianity because they see it as oppressive because it tells them they can't always follow their appetites and their urges and their desires. And everybody who is not a believer in Jesus still worships something. And our job, our mission, our purpose is to represent Christ before them. And in order to do that adequately and effectively, we have to know how to confront their gods. And in our story today, Paul is in a similar situation that I was when I went off to college because Paul grew up in a world and in an environment where he was surrounded by people who all believed in the God he believed in. But today he's going to go into the heart of paganism, and he's going to stand in front of a group of people who all believe that they're right in their beliefs and that Paul is a fool for what he believes. And how he responds to them is going to show us some lessons on how we can represent Christ before people 
who worship other gods, whether they call them a god or not. So just to give you some background, Paul is in the city of Athens. Athens is the cultural and philosophical capital of the ancient world. Rome was the military and political capital. That's where the power was. But what happened in Athens was what changed the way people thought and lived. Sort of like today, you might say Washington, D.C. is where the political and military power is, most powerful city on earth. And yet, when you get right down to it, it's New York and Hollywood that really dictate the way people think, our values and, and our, our culture. And that's Athens. Now, why is Paul in Athens? Now, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but Paul actually got kicked out of a couple of cities. I know, Paul's such a an easygoing, non-controversial guy, and yet Thessalonica ran him out of town, and then he went to Berea, and they ran him out of town there too. And so he sent uh, Luke and, and Timothy and Silas back into those two cities and said, go ahead and finish the work there, establish churches. I'm going to move on so that I don't get you into further trouble. I'll just meet you in Athens. And so he goes to Athens to wait for his, his team. But you know Paul, he can't just sit around and wait. He's not going to rent an Airbnb and go tour the city. He has to work. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 16. So now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Just as a side note, there was a saying in the ancient world that Athens has more gods than men. So as Paul walks through the city and he sees these shrines, these statues, these temples everywhere, the old Pharisee in Paul starts to creep out and he starts to get angry and he starts to feel sorrow. Sorrow and rage combined. This shouldn't be this way. So what does he do? He goes to work. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Just as a side note, when Paul is standing in the marketplace that's not like today going to H-E-B and preaching in the produce aisle. The agora, the marketplace of ancient uh, Greek life, was the place where you went not just to get your food and your supplies. You went to hear the latest news. You went to find out what the corn prices were and, and, and what beef prices were and, and how, uh, how the stock market was doing. You went to hear about the latest culture, what's the, what's the latest songs people are singing, the latest poetry that's been written, the latest play that's being performed, and most of all, you went to hear the latest thoughts. And out of, the, out of the world of philosophy in that culture, there were two philosophies that were most popular, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And I won't take your time to try to explain what those two schools taught, just to know that's basically, if you were a Greek back then, people would ask you, are you an Epicurean or are you a Stoic? It's sort of like today, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? And so these two groups both hear Paul preaching and they say, we need to hear more about this. Now it goes on in verse, uh, where was I? Verse 18. So, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Just as a side note there, in Greek, the word resurrection is anastasis. So when they heard Paul talking about Jesus, they'd never heard of Jesus before. And anastasis, the resurrection, they assumed that was a female deity. So Jesus and anastasis, this married pair of gods. And so they've got it wrong already. It says in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these mean. 
Now, Luke doesn't present this in a way that makes it sound dire, but when you read between the lines, they're accusing him of something. They're accusing him of preaching foreign deities. And you might say, well, they had dozens of gods. What's one more? The problem was Paul was preaching a God they'd never heard of. And they were, they were very careful. They were very careful not to introduce foreign elements into their religious system because they thought that they as Greeks knew what was what. And people who were Jewish, for instance, were lower. You couldn't accept one of their deities. And by the way, if you go back 500 years before Paul, Socrates, you may have heard of him. You know why he was executed by the Greeks? For preaching foreign deities. So there's a very good chance that Paul's life is on the line here. When they bring him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill is the way that's translated. That's the place where legal disputes were decided, where trials were conducted. It's also the city council of Athens, and so big decisions were made there. Paul, at the very least, even if he wasn't on trial for his life, and I think he might have been, at the very least, the gospel was on trial. So if the Areopagus said after Paul's presentation, you know, this stuff that you just said to us is nuts. You are not allowed to preach this anymore in any Greek city. That would really hamper Paul's ability to preach the gospel in Europe because the whole European continent and a lot of Asia Minor was Greek in culture. So this was a big moment. But most of all for Paul, what this was, was an opportunity. He was going to stand before the most powerful men in the culture. Imagine, imagine if uh, the best preacher you know had a chance to stand in front of both houses of Congress, every major Hollywood producer, and the presidents of every Ivy League university, and deliver a presentation on this is what the gospel truly is. Do you think that would be a great opportunity? Absolutely. That's what Paul saw this as. And so he launches into his presentation, and listen, as we read this, we're going we're gonna to get to the end of this and we're going to talk about what does this teach us about how we should represent the gospel before those of other faiths, those who don't believe in our God. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is not actually far from each of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So what does Paul say in all of this? By the way, we can be sure that's not all Paul said. His presentation was probably much longer. This is a summary of his statement. And yet I'm sure that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us everything we need to know. 
So what do we know that Paul said, and what does that tell us about how we should relate to people who believe in other gods, whether they call them gods or not? Number one, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time, show respect for and knowledge of their beliefs. If you really want to change people's hearts, you have to start from a place of knowledge and respect. What does Paul do at the beginning of his presentation? He actually compliments the Athenians. He says, wow, you guys are really religious. I am impressed. I walked through your city. I saw an altar to an unknown God. You're so religious. You wanted to make sure that even if there's a God you haven't heard of, that he's been worshipped. And he's not going to be offended that he didn't receive worship from you. He said, what that reflects in you is a seeking heart, a heart that desires spiritual truth, and I admire that. But let me tell you about the one true God. Let me tell you about the God you've actually been seeking. The unknown God, I'm going to reveal him to you. See, that's what Paul is doing. What is is Paul doing here? He, he, He compliments them even though we know that in his heart he was angry. We know that in his heart he was sorrowful for the ignorance of the Athenians. So is he being phony? No. He's establishing common ground. He's saying, here's what you and I have in common. We both are seeking spiritual truth. We're both seeking the one true God. And I'm going to tell you about it. If Paul were here today and he had a chance to speak to a room full of Muslims, you know what he might say? I think he'd say, you believe that there is only one God and that He is absolutely righteous. And I agree with you. You believe that that God sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect sinless life and that He's coming back someday. And I believe everything that I just said is true. But let me tell you what else is true. That God who is absolutely righteous is also so loving that He sent Jesus to die for us to make us righteous. Isn't that good news? That's what I've come to tell you. Or if he were here today and speaking to a group of unbelieving college students, idealistic young protesters, what would he say to them? I think he might say, you believe in justice. You believe in justice for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. You believe in a world where everybody has the same opportunities and things are put in place the way they should be. I saw you out there protesting yesterday. I just want to say, good for you. God loves justice too. In fact, God loves justice so much that He sent Jesus to die for everybody from the rich guy on Park Avenue to the, to the homeless guy on Skid Row. And His blood brings salvation for everybody at the same level the same grace. And when you get into His presence, you're part of the same family, red, yellow, black, and white. And if you really want the justice you're seeking, it can only be found through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul was establishing common ground so he could preach the truth to them. You see, the the way it works, the way people's minds work, and you know this if you think about it, is you can either insult somebody or you can persuade them, but you can't do both. You can either get into an argument with someone and try to win and walk away saying, well, I told him, or you can come at them from a perspective of respect and knowledge. You know what Paul does? Paul actually quotes twice from Greek 
pagan poets in his presentation. That means Paul actually did his homework and sat, and sat down and read Greek poetry, Greek philosophy, so he could say, I understand now what these people believe. In preparation for this conversation, he actually did his homework. Let me ask you something. Do you think the old Paul would have done that? The Paul who was persecuting Christians, who was a rising star among the Pharisees, do you think he would have, he would have sooner jumped off a cliff than read anything written by a pagan? And if he had a chance to stand in front of the Areopagus, he would have said something like, okay, Athenians, let me tell you the truth. Your religion is a joke. You worship gods that are less righteous than the least righteous person I know. Your sexual ethics are an abomination. You are going to burn in hell, and I'll be there to laugh about it. Now let's ask ourselves the question. When we meet somebody who disagrees with us, when we read their comments on social media, when we hear them on the news, is our prevailing emotion more like old Paul or redeemed Paul? Is it more anger and this is my country and how dare you be here and I've got to put you in your place? Or is it more, my goodness, you need to know about Jesus. What can I do to persuade you that he is real, that he loves you, that he is the truth, the way, and the life? And you might say, but Jeff, come on. Jesus wasn't always nice. Jesus didn't worry about what people thought of him. Jesus said harsh things. Absolutely. Nobody wanted to crucify Mr. Rogers. Jesus was not a nice person. He said things that hurt people's feelings. I get it. I agree with you. But look at every one of those times Jesus said something that was harsh, that was hard for people to hear, that hurt people's feelings. Every single time, look me up on this, every single time he was talking to one of his fellow Israelites. Not that it's about the race, it's about the fact that he was talking to people who knew the word of God. He was saying, you people know better. You know the truth and you're not living it. But when he was talking to Romans, when he was talking to Gentiles, Greeks, Jesus grew up in Galilee, the, the most Gentile-infested area of Israel. He was around them all the time. When he was around, quote-unquote, sinners, the technical term for Jews who were so morally compromised they weren't allowed to enter the synagogue, if, if he had ever denounced any one of those groups of people, people would have cheered him. They would have donated to his ministry. They would have slapped him on the back and said, you're our man. But instead, what does he do? He heals the servant of a Roman centurion. He heals the daughter of a Gentile woman in Syrophoenicia. He, he goes across the Sea of Galilee into the ten cities over and over again and heals and, and casts out demons and preaches the gospel. He loved the sinners so much they flocked to him. And then when he was around people who knew the word, he told them the truth unvarnished in ways that hurt their feelings. See, I'm not making this up. Let me give you two, two uh, scriptures to back myself up. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's remember who's writing these words. Peter, the guy who once cut a guy's ear off, right? But that was old Peter. This is redeemed Peter saying that when you have to defend your faith, 
you do it with gentleness and respect. Not that they're going to treat you with gentleness and respect because chances are they won't. But you treat them with gentleness and respect because your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is not to replicate the guy you see on cable news who uh, loves to trash the people you disagree with. Your, your goal is to persuade someone to change their mind. And that doesn't start from a place of insult and anger and arrogance. It starts from a place of common ground and respect. And then Paul, at the end of his life, writes 2 Timothy 2.25. He's talking to Timothy about the man of God and how the man of God responds to his skeptics. He says, you do it by correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you want to see your non-Christian friends come to know Christ? Well, then treat them with gentleness and respect. Understand their beliefs well enough to be able to say, okay, I can understand why you would think that way. Be able to say their beliefs back to them in such a way that they can say, okay, you get me. And then you're at a place where you can tell them the truth. Second, second thing, speak their language. My grandma, my mom's mom, lived her whole life in Hope, Texas. Don't try to look it up on a map. It's not there. Suburban Yoakum, you might say. The greater Yoakum Metroplex. Um, she lived, she was the wife of a dairy farmer. She never went to college. Very intelligent woman. But as far as I know, never saw a computer with her own eyes in her whole life. My dad, on the other hand, was a computer programmer. That was his living. That was his training. And I remember one day we were over at their house and grandma said to my dad, what is the internet? And I thought, okay, this is going to be good. So here's what my dad didn't say. My dad did not say, the internet is a global system of interconnected computer networks that are linked by a broad array of wireless, electronic, and optical networking technologies to deliver information to people around the world. That's what it says in Wikipedia. He didn't say that. Instead, I, as I remember, what he said was, well, you know, every computer has information on it, and the internet enables my computer to talk to your computer so it can get your information on my computer so I can read it, so we can share information around the world. And grandma said, okay. He spoke her language. He didn't talk down to her. He said, I know my mother-in-law. I think this is the best way for her to understand what the internet is. We all do this, right? If you're in business and you have a highly technical knowledge of medical supplies or auto mechanics or engineering or whatever it is you do, and a layperson walks into your office and asks you a question, do you want to impress them with your whiz-bang knowledge or do you want them to actually understand what you're saying? If you want them to understand, you talk their language. See, we need to do that when we're talking to our non-Christian neighbors and friends and acquaintances. I want you to notice something amazing about this speech that Paul gives. You know what he doesn't do here that he does in every other presentation? He never quotes the Bible. Not once. That's pretty amazing. He quotes twice from pagan poets. Never once says, here's what the prophets said about the coming Messiah. Is that because Paul suddenly became theologically liberal and, and stopped believing in the authority of God's word? Of course not. It's because he said to himself, 
If I were a Greek philosopher, I wouldn't care what the Bible says because I wouldn't believe the Bible's authoritative. So why am I going to waste their time and mine by quoting them Scripture that they don't yet recognize as truth? I've got to speak their language until I get them to the point where they can hear the truth of Scripture. We, as God's people, have to put ourselves in the shoes of everybody we know who's not a believer in Jesus and say, If I were them, what would it take to persuade me? Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. I am all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And then third, and this is the most important one. Without this one, the other two are at best interfaith dialogue, which has some value, but doesn't change anybody's life. But number three, you have to show the distinctiveness of faith in Christ. See, as Paul's wrapping up his presentation, if his whole goal was to save his life, or even if his whole goal was to validate Christianity legally in the Greek courts, he would have said something like this. So, after saying all of that, let me just say, you believe in a collection of gods, I believe in a God, but basically we're all the same. That's not what he does, though, is it? No, Paul wraps it up in the last two verses by saying, you know, God's been putting up with your ignorance up till now. Which I don't think he meant as an insult. He understands you didn't know who he was. You've been building these temples, you've been worshiping these gods, and he hasn't destroyed you because he loves you, but now's the time for repentance. Now that you know the truth, now's the time to change. Because there is coming a day of judgment. And we know this is true because God sent His Son Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead. Now Paul has just mentioned repentance, judgment, and resurrection. And those are three concepts that aren't found anywhere in Greek thought or Greek religion. What is Paul doing? He's saying, you and I have some things in common. We're both seeking spiritual truth, but our gods are not the same. And let me tell you what's great about my God. And somewhere in our relationship with our non-Christian friends and neighbors, we need to seek the opportunity to express things like that. And I know, I know it's awkward, and I know you're thinking to yourself, well, I could never do that. Some of you are thinking to yourself, well, Jeff, I'm just not that smart. I'm not that articulate. It doesn't matter. Moses had the same objection, remember? God made you. God created you just as you are. He placed you in that relationship with that person thinking you are the right person for this person to hear the gospel from. He knows what he's doing. You might say, well, what if he asked me questions that I don't know the answer to? You know what? If, if I were a betting man and I had to lay odds, they're going to ask you questions that you don't know the answer to. You can pretty much count on it. But that's a good thing. That gives you the opportunity to express something they rarely see in the world, which is humility. And to say, I don't know the answer to that. Let me do some studying. That's a very good question. I'll get back to you. And then do it. And listen, I understand. It's not our responsibility to to accomplish the salvation of every person we know. We're powerless. They make their own decisions. We don't. But we haven't done our job until we know that they know who Jesus is and what he has done for them. 
Our job isn't done until we know that they know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. See, we have an advantage on Paul. Paul had one shot at the Oropagus. He was there before them for maybe an hour. A couple of people believed. A couple more said, we want to hear more about this. But then he had to go. You and I get to live in the midst of men and women who worship other gods. They get to see our lifestyle every day. So don't just focus on telling, focus on showing as well. Live a life that is authentic, that is real. Show them love that they've never seen before. Show them humility, show them courage, show them boldness, show them, show them compassion. Show them the real gospel. Jesus came into this world and he wasn't a tourist. He didn't just observe, he invested in every single one of us. He invested his whole self to the point of dying for us. Now we have the opportunity to invest in the life of every person God brings into our orbit. Let's not miss that opportunity.